So my wife, Tina, and I, we met in 1992. And I was dating a girl on her floor. And as a lot of you know, freshman girls tend to travel in packs. So we got a chance to kind of, you know, see each other, meet, stuff like that. And uh, I I was mercilessly dumped later that fall. But (laughs) Tina and I had hit it off, and and, and we remained friends. And and that friendship lasted for a a few more months. and, And I think a lot of you have experienced this. You start hitting that place where you're hoping that it's more than friends. It's starting to feel like it's, it's more than friends. And then on March 20th of 1993, we became official. All right? Now, uh, Tina will actually give you a, a different sequence of events and, <laughs> and a different kickoff date. Um, she's wrong. Um, it, was, it was March 20th, 1993. And she's not here either. Yes. Yeah. When messages change at 10:30, you know it. So we were college together, and you know, you guys know what it's like when you are there with the love of your life, and you're able to spend every waking moment together. And that's what we did. We had two glorious months of being in each other's presence before the end of the semester came, and it was amazing. And it creates one of those situations where you don't want it to end, right? I mean, everyone wants school to get out, but you don't want it to end. Because see, she lived in Northeast Indiana, and I lived in Chicago. And when summer came, there was going to be this four-hour gap in between us. In between work and family commitments and other things, there would be the, the weekend that we'd fight for. But to go from every waking hour to I'll see it in two weeks. It, it, it was murder. It was absolute murder. And, and any of you here who have ever been separated from the love of your life, you know exactly that agony of distance I'm talking about, right? Well, what do we do? We tried to make it work. Uh, we fought through it, but... It was painful. And I don't know if you've had an experience like this, but you end up start clinging to stuff. And, and, and i got to just kind of preface something here. See, for those of you born after 1990, this was before internet. I mean, I mean it existed, but no one had it. And, and if you did have it, it was like dial-up. You, you know, I mean, you remember those AOL discs? used to get in the mail, and no one had email. I remember being at college, and we actually had what was called an intranet. So you can go to like the computer bank, and you can like send IM messages to people like on campus, and that was it. But that was the extent of it. You, you know, you didn't have a phone. This was still like long-distance plans, pay-by-the-minute, you, you know, type of thing. So what did we have in the absence? Well, what I had was... This, letters, notes, cards, love notes that Tina had sent me and she had a box of ones that I sent her, all encapsulated here today before you in this country sausage and buttermilk biscuits (laughs) box. Because nothing encapsulates love like country sausage and buttermilk biscuits. I 
clinged to these. I read them over and over again. I might around my like house, my my house, that would be weird, but like around my room, you know, like like memento things, like cards that she would send me that you would leave set up for like four months later, taped on the wall, on the bulletin board, just things that you would read. Sometimes it was as simple as a little post-it note. Sometimes it was it was a longer letter or something where she just poured her heart and and I clung to these in her absence. See, for those of you born after 1990, this was texting. Okay? And uh, I was just, uh, do you want to hear a few of them, actually, here today? Yeah, too bad. Bet you do. (laughs) It's what we had in absence of each other. Now, the reality is that box has sat in our basement for the last like 11, 12 years since we moved here to McHenry. And here's the reason why. See, I'm in Tina's presence now. I get to be with her, right? And being with her is better by far than a box of notes. But when there's separation... When there is distance, suddenly things like that start to mean everything. It's like when I read those, I I would still have at least some kind of semblance or some kind of piece of her presence, even though she wasn't physically there. You know what I mean? Okay, this is exactly what it was like for Israel at the exile. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, I made a case that this is the date in Old Testament history that changed everything. 587 BC. It's a date that's called or termed the exile. Here's what happened. The nation of Babylon came to Judah. All that was left of Israel. They came and invaded Judah. They deposed the king. They destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground, and they sent all the people in Israel into exile out of their homeland. And when this date came, everything that Israel had, everything that they clung to, every ounce of what it meant to be in God's presence was stripped away. Last week, I showed you a few things, these these things that, that Israel clung to. How they define their faith, where they found God, basically. They found him in Jerusalem. They found him at the temple. They found him in the king. They found him in the land. These were their tangible signs. God is here. And just to review what we read, this is what happened. The king is deposed. The city is burned down. The temple is raised the people are sent away. What do you do when the God whose presence you delight to be and you love to be him, that that means everything to you, when you are suddenly taken out of his presence in every conceivable way? Because when that happened, that's exactly what Israel faced. And what we're going to talk about today is how Israel came to terms with that. 
What did it mean for them? How did they come to still depend on a faithful God even when he wasn't there? How do you trust in God and stay connected to his presence even when you are separated from him? And my hope is by learning how they did it, somehow it'll rub off on us too. You know, that we can start to come to terms. What does it mean when we feel like we are distant from God separated from him, how do we learn to trust him and stay connected to his presence as well? Now, let me go back to this temple thing. See, the temple for Israel was not like what we would think of as a church today. See, we think of church today, we think about a place, you come, you meet your friends, you get some coffee, right? You, you, you sing some songs, you say some prayers, you learn some things about God, then you go on your way. But for the temple, it was something so much more concentrated than that because a temple, by definition, is nothing more than a house for God. It's where God lives. Where's God? They go, well, he's there in the temple. I want to meet God. Hey, Come with me to the temple. What's God like? Come on, let's go see. So when the temple's gone, it's not just something like for us, like a church being burned down. It was like the very presence of God being stripped away from among them. With the temple gone and them gone from the temple, everything about their presence and connection to God Changed, And what it did is it caused a shift. Israel had to start shifting how they would stay connected to God after the exile, as opposed to what it was like with the temple before. Now, what I want to do is show you just how the Old Testament will trace this theme and give you an idea of what this would actually look like, okay? There's this great psalm. Some of you probably know it or at least have a bit of familiarity. It's Psalm 46. I'm going to say it, not the whole thing at once, in pieces. And what I want you to do is say it after me. Get it on your lips, all right? Get it on you. Here's how it goes. God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. And the mountains quake with their surging. All right, don't repeat this next part. So who's God? Who's God according to the psalm? Our refuge and our strength in ever-present help, even in trouble. Therefore, Don't be afraid, right? Now the psalm goes on, and here's why. Repeat after me. There is a city city. whose streams make glad the city of God. The The holy place place. where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. She will not fall. Do you, do you, are you listening to what you just said? Yeah, you got that? There is a stream who makes glad what? The city of God. What's the city of God? It's not a trick question. What's the city of God? According to Israel, 
Jerusalem. It's where God's at. It's where God lives. There is a stream who makes glad the city of God. In the ancient Near East, temples were always built by mouths of water or streams. It was the idea that they were a source of life-giving you know, sustenance to the land. And, and even when a stream didn't actually exist there, the metaphor would continue. There is a stream that makes glad the city of God, a holy place, the holy place where the most high dwells. And just in case you didn't key in, God is within her. She will not fall. You catching that? God is within her. She will not fall. Who won't fall? Jerusalem. What's the problem? She did. See, what you're reading in this psalm is this, 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 this pre-exile idea. Where do we find our faithful God at the city, in Jerusalem, at the temple. And you get the sense, you you can see them singing this, reading this, pondering this, holding on in in times of, of crisis, holding on in times of fear, holding on in times when it seems like everything is going opposite, but God is faithful. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. What is it like to be in 587 BC, seeing the nations surround the city, singing this song, anchoring your faith in that place, only to watch it all unravel before you, only to watch it all get stripped away, only to watch it fail? I mean, how does that rock your faith? How does it rock your faith when you put your faith in something that seems so simple and straightforward that God said, and it doesn't work? Or it doesn't come to pass? It doesn't play out that way. What what does it do to your trust in God? What does it do to your relationship with him? What does it do to even your your belief in his existence or what you've come to believe about him? Because if you can start to come to terms with that, you can start to come to terms with why Well, this date here was so absolutely cataclysmic for Israel. And what it forced them to do was reevaluate everything. It was like a kid, you know? A kid watching his parents' house be burned down. Mom and dad are nowhere to be found, kidnapped, and then taken halfway across the world yearning for that place, yearning to go back. And what does it mean to be separated from him? I want to show you another psalm now that reflects that. A psalm that picks up on that shift. A psalm that kind of gets at the heart of how Israel had to discover that, yes, God is still faithful, even when everything we've come to depend on is taken away. Now, this is from Psalm 1. So if you read any of them, it's probably this one. Look at what it says. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh. The translation might say the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree 
planted by streams of water. That should raise something to your attention. Do you remember the streams of Psalm 46? What were the streams doing then? Bringing delight to the city of God, bringing life to the city of God, standing as a representation of God's presence there. But where is the stream now? In the Torah of Yahweh. And the person um, who delights in it, he's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked there like chaff and the wind blows them away. What happened after exile was a shift. A shift for what it meant to be in the presence of God. Because before 587, God was there. But at 587, they were no longer there. And what did they have left? This. It's all that remained. It was all that they had left to cling to. The letters and poems and songs and records and love notes from God that he had given them over the years, telling them what he was like, what he thought about them, the plans that, that he was dreaming together for them and, 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 and what he wanted to experience with them in the future. It's what they came to cling to because sometimes when you're not in someone's presence, you can still find some of that presence in things like these. And after exile, the entire focus shifted from temple to Torah from a place where I would have to go to meet God to God meeting me in any place that I might be. Because it ain't easy to pick up a temple and carry it with you. Would you agree? It's a heck of a lot more easy to carry some of these. And everything shifted in how they met with God, understood God, came into his presence because they started to discover we still know what he's like. We still hear his voice. We can still be in his presence in this word, in this message. God has not stopped speaking. These letters and poems and songs, they are still speaking to us today. And the man who delights in it, the woman who delights in it, you're going to be like a tree planted in streams of water. The life-giving springs of God. And I think of what that last line must have been like for those in exile. Whatever he does prospers. Not easy to say when you're a victim of human trafficking, is it? Do you hear the hope in the presence of lack of hope? I may have been kidnapped and dragged thousand miles away, whatever he does prospers. But not so the wicked, not so those who have taken us. There is a hope like chaff. They'll be blown away. 
It's like Israel discovered that you didn't have to go to a place in Jerusalem to be with God. Which brings us to Jesus. Because the entire point of what the Gospels are about, that that tell the story of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, is I said, we don't need the letters anymore. Because God's come back. We don't need the letters anymore because here he is in our presence. We don't need the letters in the same way anymore because now we can hear God's voice from him. Have you ever thought about this phrase that Hebrew says in the New Testament? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through these. But now he's here. And to swap it out would be as goofy as for me to like sit in the basement year on end pining for Tina reading these when she's right upstairs. You, you, you know what I mean? But it's interesting to me because here today, I think we find ourselves in the same place that people found themselves in exile because you know what? Jesus ain't here. He's not. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God and we're waiting for him to come back, right? Really, we are in a period of separation again. It was like May 14th, 1993. You're going to Indiana, and we know that's the ends of the earth, and I'm going to, right? No longer together again. So like those people in exile, what do we do? We cling to the words that he said. You know, the promises that he made, the letters and poems and stories that describe who he's like and and what he's about and what he thinks about you and me and, and the relationship he's desiring to have and the future in store. It's no surprise that one of the ways the New Testament will often talk about the separation we have from Christ is like, a fiancé waiting for her fiancé to come back someday so the wedding can actually happen. And we wait, and we agonize, and we yearn because the day is coming again when we'll be in his presence. But until then, the disciples and the, the prophets who went on after them had a universal message. Cling to these. Why do we make such a big deal out of this book? It's because this is where you're going to meet God, even when you're distant from him. This is where you're going to figure out how God thinks about you when you start to wonder or to doubt him. This is where you're going to be able to have a semblance of his presence as we wait for that day for his homecoming and return. It's why we read it. It's why we memorize it. It's why we we delve into it. It's why we set it up like mementos in our houses, right? And and everything in between. Guys, I just encourage you, meet God today.
Come into his presence today. Immerse yourself in this sucker. Because there's a God there who wants to also be close to you. It's a... It's, it's kind of cool that, that Jesus did something else as well. It was the night he was going to be betrayed that he gathered with his disciples in an upper room, and he started to tell them, I'm leaving. You ever hear those words from someone you love? I'm leaving. The panic, the fear, the heartache, the uncertainty. Well, welcome to the Last Supper. I'm leaving. And he starts to do something very strange. He starts to take bread and he breaks it. And he gives it to his disciples and he says, take and eat. This is my body and it's given for you. And he takes a cup and he says, take and drink. This is my blood. It's shed for you. It's the blood of a new covenant for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this too. Do this as well. Remember me. And know that in ways like this, I will also come to you. So guys, I want to invite you into God's presence today. I want to invite you into it here. And for these next moments, I want to invite you into it here. And as you wait, may you connect with him in a deeply personal, intimate way.